And Rhys is the final reminder today, as if you needed it, of challenges ahead and how to muster the spirit to face them. So now take a note, or dozens of them, from the undaunted assurances of Bob MacDonald and the marvellous quirks and quarks. Now, Bob, you have been presenting this programme for 30 years. <laughs> Has it changed dramatically over that time, or are you doing the same sort of style as you used to in the beginning? Well, the program itself has not changed in its style. We're very simple. We do the science of the week. What's new? What's happening? Occasionally, we'll take on subjects and look at them in detail in, in documentaries. But we go for the latest in science. We talk to the number one scientist at the top of the list and just try to get it right and say, there it is. We let the science stand on its own, and it has. The, the show is coming up to its 50th anniversary, actually. <laughs> and uh, Well, indeed, we're related yes. because the science show went to the CBC, which was in the Hotel Vancouver at the time, <laughs> in August 1975. And three months later, a chap called Suzuki went to exactly the same studio and <laughs> recorded the first quirks. Yes. And we had the same broadcast time with midday on Saturday repeating. And you continually remind me of that, Robin, that you are three months older than our show. <laughs> But it's a supreme privilege for me to host the show for the last 30 years, and it's been amazing. I, I feel like a surfer on the cutting edge of our knowledge. I'm sure you feel the same way. We're just riding along on this this wave of new knowledge, and it's it's always new. That's what makes the show so refreshing, is every week it's something new, and it doesn't matter if it's out at the edge of the universe or beginning of time or into the atom or the sex life of some insect somewhere. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's all new. And that's what keeps me going. So that's great. One thing that I am concerned about, though, is not so much our show, but what surrounds our show, and I'm sure you're seeing the same thing, is the plethora of pseudoscience on social media. And there are people that are putting out misinformation or wrong information or conspiracy theories, and they have a huge voice now, and that bothers me a lot. It bothers us too. And what we try to do is have arguments about ways in which you can be critical as a listener, as a learner, as someone who's getting information, because these days it's not simply a nuisance, it's dangerous. <laughs> you Absolutely. know, if we can't actually tackle. The whole point about your new book, The Sciences Now, is getting a population together, working together as a community, you know, separate communities, to apply all this wonderful stuff that we've been broadcasting for so many decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll come to that soon. But uh, when it comes to broadcasting, I wonder whether you have any problems with a one-hour program with young people of the TikTok generation, one minute and 15 seconds, not one hour. Mm -hmm. Do you have a problem with a new audience? I don't have a problem with it, but there is a phenomenon that I have noticed, and that's information-rich, knowledge-poor. That the information is so easy to access that it doesn't stick. And I've had many cases where I've been asked to judge science fairs or spoken to students, and, and they'll, they'll be able to pick things off, usually out of their phone, right away. But when I ask them some fundamental questions, like, you know, what's the relationship between the Earth and the Moon and the Sun? How do they all move? They don't get that. They'll tell you how many days are in, in a year or how long it takes the moon to go around the earth, but, but actually visualizing what it looks like, they have trouble with that. And that bothers me because you have to understand fundamentals, and that's what sticks. That's what sticks. You see patterns in, in nature, you see patterns in science. So that worries me a little bit with these one-minute bites, how much of it is actually sticking. 
Indeed. Well, you see, the difference is, I think, to some extent with between Quirks and Quarks and the science show, we are spread, if you like, with the repeats over a week mm-hmm. for the live broadcast or the as live. But then, of course, you're online almost forever <laughs> so that... The question of topicality and what is new becomes slightly approximate. So what we concentrate on really is ideas, because what you've described with the nature of the universe and the galaxy and so on is a big idea. And we try to put the news part, the topical part or whatever it is that you can call it in as part of that. And so it's more of an extended conversation not simply to talk about issues, but to talk about, as I said, ideas. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, it does. And also talk about the process of science, which I also find people misunderstand. They think if some new idea comes along that all the old ideas are thrown out. Whereas it's a pyramid. It's it's a pyramid of knowledge that you modify what you knew and get higher up on the pyramid of knowledge. But it's not a revolution all the time. It's, it's just a, a better way of thinking. New instruments come along, like the James Webb Telescope. Oh, well, we're seeing further back in time now. We're getting new insights into the Big Bang and the early evolution of galaxies. But that doesn't say that what we knew before was wrong. It's just refined it. And that's also part of the process is how science itself works so that you don't have folks coming along saying, oh, science is uncertain. And because it's uncertain, then we don't need to believe it anymore. And uh, therefore, my idea, my opinion is correct. (laughs) And that's uh, another fundamental thing that we need to understand. It's quite interesting in the science show. I've got a long interview with Tim Palmer, who's a professor of physics at Oxford, called The Primacy of Doubt. Hmm. how doubting, even in the extreme where you think, you know, you know you're right. (laughs) You know, for instance, I argued about the question in the program last week in mathematics about how the sum total of the internal angles of a triangle are always 180. Well, of course, if it's on the surface of the earth and it's big and it's bent, (laughs) it's no longer 180. So you've got all these conditionals. But the thing I wanted to ask you, really, about the new generation. It seems to me that what we can do if we have a direct connection with the classroom and the teachers is have their support and in some ways alleviate their hard work because they're absolutely buried in formalities these days and filling in forms as well as teaching. And if the teachers help us with a new audience and mention the program Quirks and Quarks in Canada, does that happen at all? where you are? We actually have a university here in Canada that uses Quirks and Quarks every week. The students are required to listen to the program on the Saturday when it goes to air, and then they talk about it on Monday. And that's their first class is to discuss the science of the week. So they're, they're using it as part of their curriculum, which delights me to no end. I'm really happy about that. I am finding that some young people are afraid they're afraid of the future because they're hearing all of this bad news about the environment and projections for the future of a, a warmer world and all the terrible things that are coming with that. And I have also encountered, not always, but very often, a kind of helplessness. As soon as they're faced with a challenge, they're afraid to go ahead and try it 
because in many cases, not all, but in many cases, they've had everything done for them. And they're not used to making their own decisions. And I, I worry about that in the future. On the other hand, I've, I've seen some highly motivated kids doing great projects and doing great science. So I guess it's always, you know, like the old folks like you and I, Robin, we're always looking back on the younger generation and say, ah, kids today, they're not doing anything right. <laughs> but ultimately, they will become the scientists of the future, the politicians of the future, the decision makers. And they're the ones that we have to get to. And that's why I've dedicated a good part of my career to working with kids, because they are the future. And of course, the whole point about science is it's looking to the future. Yes. Its process is quite different from business because when the business people talk to the scientific people about innovation, for example, the business people are saying, well, we'll get that done next Tuesday, whereas Mm. the scientists (laughs) will say, we'll get that done in uh, 2027 with a (laughs) bit of luck, (laughs) different time zone. Now, the whole point about what you are saying refers to your book. The future is now. What were you trying to do in that book? Well, I wrote the book because I was getting frustrated after so many years of reporting on the environment. And I don't know about you, Robin, but my very first job at the CBC in Canada was to write a one-hour documentary on climate change in 1977. 77. We were talking about climate change back then. And they were predicting all of the things that we're seeing. Warmer temperatures, the loss of ice in the Arctic, the droughts, the floods, the stronger strike. All of that was predicted. And I've been watching it come true and watching the glacial pace of action to do something about it. And it was getting me down. And I thought, well, we've had all this time of looking at the problems. What are the solutions? And I was delighted when I found that the solutions to going green, to producing energy without the carbon emissions, All that technology already exists. So I put it together in the book. Say, here it is. Here's an update on the latest on solar and wind and geothermal and tidal and energy storage and all of that. It's an update and it's a positive look. And this book has been on the bestseller list here in Canada. And the most common feedback that I've had from it, from people of all ages, is that, gee, a positive look at the future. Because I believe we can do this. We can apply the same innovation that we did that got us to the moon within 10 years to just transition our energy into clean technology. It's there. And so let's get on with it. Now, Bob, this is not a competition, but on the Science Show in 1975, August the 30th, 1975, having recorded interviews actually in Canada, where you are, UBC, University of British Columbia, I interviewed Lord Richie Calder who was in charge of energy in the House of Lords in London. And he was speaking at the big conference, Pacific Science Congress, and he said, these are the weights of the fossil fuel gases that go into the atmosphere every year. And he gave me the complete list Mm. of the ones that we know very much now. And he said, unless we do something, we are really in deep trouble. It's going to be a disaster. And we've been saying this since 1963. And here we are in 1975 and people still haven't acted. (laughs) That was science show number one, item number three. Now, the extraordinary thing is, as you list in your book, the most extraordinary innovations I'm thinking of perovskites, Mm -hmm. where you have something to do with capturing solar energy. You can paint your house or something like that. Now, that's been around for about 20 years at least. Mm -hmm. We've got many other of the innovations that you mention. Why haven't they become more common? What stopped it? Well, I think part of it is, as you're saying, with the fossil fuel industry, there have been delay tactics, the whole climate denial 
program we know now was partially funded by the fossil fuel industry to put doubt in the public mind and in the political mind to say, you know, this is going to cost us the economy, it's going to cost jobs, we can't afford to do this. And that's just slowed things down to keep business as usual. And one of the things I'm saying in my book and that I'm trying to profess is let's not make the fossil fuel industry the enemy. Because when you do that, when you have good versus evil, both sides just dig in and nothing happens. There are ways to get energy out of fossil fuels without the carbon. And we have a company here in Canada that has figured out a way to get hydrogen out of hydrocarbons. That's where they are, right? It's, it's a long chain of carbon atoms with hydrogen stuck to them. And when you burn it, it's the hydrogen that's coming off the carbons left behind. They have found a way of getting hydrogen out of oil while it's still in the ground. It's still in the ground. And so the carbon stays underground. It's, it's automatic carbon capture and storage. And the hydrogen comes out. Well, hydrogen's a great fuel. You can use it in a fuel cell to run electric cars, or you can use it as energy storage. There's a lot of things you can do that. These are the innovations that we have, is taking what we have and making it better. I mean, solar power's been around forever. The perovskites you mentioned, terrific. They can be transparent. You can make windows that absorb solar energy. And you think about all the area of the windows in our tall skyscrapers. The other thing is energy storage. And I found an interesting story in Australia that you've got no shortage of sand there in Australia. And it turns out that sand stores heat really, really well. You can heat it up almost to a thousand degrees and it doesn't melt. And there was a project in Australia. It was very clever. They just took this large pit and they used magnifying glasses, large magnifying glasses to concentrate solar energy and heat the sand up. They heated it up to 600 degrees, and once you heat it, it stays hot for a long, long time. And then you, if you run water through that, it turns the steam really fast, and then you can generate electricity with it, or you can heat directly. There's a company in Norway that's using sand to heat houses over the wintertime. They're getting seasonal storage out of heat. So that old argument that, oh, you know, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, doesn't hold true, because there are other ways to store energy besides in batteries, and I have a whole chapter on that. So it's, it's really just, let's get down to this. Let's see what we can do. And the parallel that I draw in terms of how we transition the technology is look at your phone. When you and I were kids, the phone was on the wall and all it did was talk. And now it's in your pocket. It's talking to satellites. It's, it's starting your car. It's, it's taking your pulses, doing so many things. That did not come about because we needed better phones. It came about because it was a better technology and everybody bought into it. It didn't come from a government mandate saying we need to do this. Well, we've done that with phones. We've done it with music. We've done it with so many other forms of technology and everybody buys into it. We haven't done that with energy. So it's time to do it and get on with it. One of the things I love about your book is that you give the detail of the various things that we've vaguely thought about but not quite understood. For example, those great big wind turbines, imagine them out at sea on the shoreline and you wonder why do they have to be so big and you in fact compare them to some skyscraper building and then you see the blades turning around quite slowly mm -hmm. and you wonder why don't they have lots of little ones which are easier to... Now, you do the calculations. What if you have one of those turbines with blades that are slightly bigger and the benefit in terms of increased energy capture is quite profound? It is. Give us the example. Yes, it is. And it all goes back to that formula that you learned in school, that the area of a circle, pi r squared. 
and that R squared, the R is the radius, which is the length of a blade in a wind turbine from the hub out to the tip. And if you double the length of the blade, R squared, you square that and that gives you the square. The area that you cover now is four, four times. You make it three times longer, you get nine times the area. So that's why they're so big. And the reason they've kind of settled out on the three bladed design is because it's the most efficient. More blades just means more material. And you don't really gain that much. Really long blades, they're now designed like airplane wings. They actually fly through the air. And they're scooping up so much area that they're capturing a huge amount of wind. And the largest at the time I wrote the book, the Halyard X, I think was uh, 12 megawatts. That's like 15,000 homes. One turbine can power. A single rotation of the, the rotor, a single turn can keep a house going for two days. That, that's how much they're doing. And they're the size of the Eiffel Tower. I mean, they're huge. They're just gigantic. So size matters with wind. And so that's, that's why they're getting so big, and that's why they have to put them offshore now, because it's hard to get them up on mountaintops because the roads, they can't go around corners. These blades are made in one piece. But it's a very simple formula, and it works. You know, so the more, the better. Yes, indeed. And you also illustrate how it is that fossil fuels, petrol, is such a powerful substance. Now, of the take-home messages that you can actually quote, in a posh dinner or a pub quiz, if you like, how many of those barrels of petrol or oil would it take to build the pyramids? <laughs> Turns out it's 400. 400 barrels, which one oil well, a productive oil well, can do in one day. And beyond that, if you add up all the energy that we use around the world every year, we burn about 2 million pyramids worth of energy. That was a calculation somebody did. They just said, well, how much energy did it take to build the pyramids based on the mass of the stones and how high they had to be lifted? And that's what they came up with. So you're right. I mean, fossil fuels are so convenient. That's why we can't let them go. We're not going to let them go. They're too convenient. They store an enormous amount of energy in a very small space. You can use them when you need them. You can carry them around. And it's just the way we've been burning them. All we've been doing is lighting a match and letting it go boom and you get instant heat, which is great. But it's an inefficient process and it produces all this pollution you know the average combustion car produces its own weight in carbon every year you were talking about how much we have in the atmosphere just look at all the cars on the road and imagine throwing them up into the sky that's how much carbon they're producing every year their own weight okay well let's fix that <laughs> and as you put in the book the amount of fuel that you put in the car well 20 percent of the fuel moves you forward that's right the rest 80 percent goes up in waste heat that's right 20% efficient. And the only reason we've been able to get away with that is because gasoline contains so much energy and we can afford to throw 80% of it away. But if you go to a pump and you're going to fill up your car, I don't know what's it costing to fill up a car in Australia right now, but here in Canada, it's like $100. So you, you put in 20 and then pour $80 into the air, <laughs> you'd probably be arrested for that. But that's exactly what we're doing. An electric car, on the other hand, is 80% efficient, if not more. Most of the energy is turned into motion. So let's just find other ways to get that energy out of the oil without just burning it. If you take that hydrogen off the oil and run it through a fuel cell, through an electric motor, now you've got a clean car. It's still a car. We haven't lost our lifestyle. We just have a different way of turning the wheels, a more efficient one. As you say, the book has been in the bestseller list for about a year. And obviously you've had feedback with this message of we can do it now. Why aren't we? 
What's been the debate around that? Well, that always comes down to it. And I say that that's not a scientific issue anymore. It's now a political issue. It's a social issue. And it's an economic issue. And we solved that very quickly when COVID hit. Here in Canada, there were four elements that came together to fight COVID-19. First, the science identified the virus and said, okay, here's how it works. Here's how it affects your lungs. Industry came in and said, we can produce vaccines for that. Government stepped in and said, we're going to support the industry and we're going to tell people, like, you got to change your behavior here with social distancing. And then fourth, the public bought into it. Most of us did. We bought into it. And look what we did. We flattened the curve and huge amounts of money suddenly became available to do that because it was an immediate in our face health care issue. Well, one of the scariest statistics that I found in researching my book was that around Five to six million people died of COVID during the first two years of the pandemic. And that's tragic. That's horrible. That's, that's a terrible loss. But every year, seven to eight million people die from the effects of burning fossil fuels, mostly from air pollution and lung. So more people died from fossil fuels then died from COVID during the same time. Twice as many died from fossil fuels. And we just let that go. So it's also a human health issue. So those are the things we need to talk about. We're living in a changing world. There's the technology. How do we go about doing this? And it's not going to happen overnight. It's, I think of it as an evolution, not a revolution. It's just take what we have and make it better. You're seeing more and more electric cars on the road. We certainly are here in North America. And eventually, you know, people like them. They say, hey, this thing's cool. I like it. It's fast. It's quiet. <laughs> it beats my old Mustang. So uh, let's go that way. And that's, I believe we can do it. But it's social engineering. You're advocating the nanny state. We'll have world government next if we're not careful. No, no, no. It's not going to come from the top down. The change is not going to come from the top down. Change comes from the bottom up. Just like I was saying with your phone, you know, people like it. Let's do it. There's, there's a thing called the neighborhood effect. I met a guy recently, just a month ago. He puts solar panels on his roof and he drives an electric car and he charges his car from his house. So he drives for free. Now, when somebody does that, the neighbors go, wow, you're driving for free. I'm going to try that. What does it cost you? How much did you save in fuel? The cost of fuel is going up. The cost of solar is going down. Do you know that on a large scale, solar is now cheaper than coal? And so that then suddenly a neighborhood has it. That's how the change comes about. It comes from the ground up, not from governments mandating that you have to do this. So let's just all of us get on with this and say, this is what we want. And then the governments are supposed to listen to the people, right? Indeed. Now, it just so happens that my father was a coal miner, went down the pit when he was 14 in South Wales, and he died at 57. Hmm. And now I'm 23 years older than he was when he died. Wow. Now, <laughs> the actual differences, as you describe them, are stark. And this is good news, and <laughs> I hope that the young people will get the message from your book and cheer up and see what the challenge could be for all these scientific jobs which are waiting to be done. Yes, and let's not come up with excuses why not to do it. Let's think of the reasons how we can do it and, and make it happen. I, I think of it like being on the Titanic, and there are lots of lifeboats for everyone. And they're, they're saying, come on, we have to abandon ship. And there are people standing on the railing going, I don't know, I've heard lifeboats are unsafe. Where was that made? I don't like the color of it. What's it made of? <laughs> I'm going to stay on the ship. It's still afloat. So let's move ahead. I, I really, really believe we can do this. And it's the young people who are going to make it happen. Are you going to continue with Quirks and Quarks for a while? 
as long as they let me. I made it very clear during my 30th anniversary show that that was not a retirement party. <laughs> I love the show, and as long as they let me do it, I'll keep doing it, just like you will, Robin. Thank you, Bob. Privilege. Always a pleasure, my friend. Bob MacDonald, 30 years as presenter of Quirks and Quarks in Canada. So much ready to be done to make a difference, as is displayed in Bob's book, The Future is Now, 